Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey there, welcome to the Loving Liberty Show. Glad you could join us. Here we go. It is the 27th of February, and this is the first hour of the program. I'm going to ask, as always, please hold your calls until the second hour. That is, uh, that's when we have our broadest audience, believe it or not. And it's also, uh, it's also when I open up the phone lines. So it's, yeah, circular logic. I got lots of it. Got a lot of good stuff to talk about, though, today as well. Uh, Jeanette Finnegan will be joining me in the next hour to talk about a very special event coming up uh, tomorrow evening at Liberty Hall in Far West Utah. It's a special screening of Dead Man Talking, Volume 2, about her husband, Lavoy Finnicum. Uh, you've probably heard the name, but if you haven't heard the story, this is a great chance for you to hear a little bit more about Lavoy and, and actually hear more about him in his own words. On tap for this hour, though, got a couple of different things I'd like to talk about. Uh, we'll talk about what it means to have a teachable spirit. We'll talk about uh, a couple of other things that uh, that... Hopefully, we'll, we'll open your mind to what's going on politically. Pat Buchanan has a marvelous, marvelous take. This was something he wrote actually before Tuesday's debate uh, between the Democratic candidates. But uh, basically, he's, he's got a pretty good, uh, pretty good summary of, of what it means that uh, Bernie Sanders is making such huge, huge inroads right now and wh- why the Democratic establishment is in absolute panic mode. There's a shift coming, and I, I'm not saying that as, boy, and it's a good thing. It could be good. It could be bad, but there is a definite shift coming. I think most of us sense that. We're just not sure which way it's going to go, right? What I want to start off with, though, let's talk about inequality. Now, most of us, if we consider ourselves decent people, we're all going to say, well, you know, I'm, I'm very much against inequality. And, and, you know, that's the proper thing to say, right? That's the woke thing to say, to know, to live at every chance, every opportunity, we should be speaking up against inequality. And, you know, as it applies to inequality before the law, yeah, I'm on board. I think the law should treat every single one of us with the same sense of gravity and the same sense of value. That's one of the reasons why I reject identity politics, which is just kind of a cheap, crude form of uh, collectivist uh, thinking or even racism that proclaims to be against such. But when you hear inequality most often, it's usually in the sense of, well, but the rich have so much and you can't ever convince me that, you know, that a billionaire deserves to be making the money that he or she is making, you know, when there are people out there, you know, keeping their company running, but they're working for, you know, very small wages or just a tiny fraction of what that billionaire is getting. So when I saw this article from the Mises Wire, this is from Mises.org. This is from Antonis Giannakopoulos. Four reasons equality isn't what you think it is. I looked it over and went, this is pretty good stuff. If you're into defining your terms, which I think most people should be when you're discussing something, otherwise we could be talking about totally different things and arguing ourselves to death over something that neither one is, is seeing clearly. But these four reasons inequality isn't what you think it is. Definitely some thought-provoking stuff here. Antonis Giannakopoulos says, One of the defining characteristics of advocates for socialism is an obsession with equality. And according to this line of thinking, inequality is the central problem of the modern world. Therefore, it demands a centralized solution. Yep, that sounds about right. The socialists and more mild social democrats push to use the power of the state to force the transfer of wealth from the productive and successful to those who are less so 
That's the way to achieve social justice, they contend. But, he says, inequality is not the societal plague that socialists allege it to be. First of all, the source of wealth is consumer judgment. Contrary to popular belief, the way to make money is not to exploit one's customers. In fact, the reality is the opposite. Wealth is created by identifying the problems that people have and then creating products that provide a solution and improve their lives. In this process, the consumer leads the process by expressing his own preferences in the marketplace. If a consumer feels that a product is overpriced, he will not make an exchange. If a product seems worthwhile, he'll buy it willingly. And it's the sum of these individual choices to purchase or not that make or break a business on the market. And that's the consumer's prerogative. In order to meet his own needs, a person must produce something that satisfies another's needs, whether they be labor, industrial machinery, or even fine cuff links. Next, he asks, does wealth accrue at the expense of the poor? One of the socialists' key assumptions is that there is is always a losing side in a transaction. They think that wealth is like a pie and that the rich take the largest slice, leaving workers and customers with almost nothing. In reality, the market is always expanding the pie, and voluntary exchanges are always win-win when they're made. Now, notice, voluntary exchanges are win-win. Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, and all the other evil capitalists have managed to create an unprecedented amount of wealth, but not just for themselves. Those working for them have benefited from their jobs, and the people who buy their products and services have benefited from better or cheaper goods, or both. Other benefits include more time to pursue more important things and in ways that can't be quantified. In other words, they're measured in psychic profit. The entrepreneurs, in turn, have benefited from the services of their workers, which are well worth paying for. So entrepreneurs also benefit from the voluntary purchases made by their customers. Next, profit and competition are not antithetical to collaboration. Okay, that's a lot of 25-cent words, but hear him out. Socialists pit profit and competition against an ideal of sharing and collaboration. But rather than being a wicked stolen good, profit is a crucial incentive for collaborative human action. Now think about this. People are always searching for the best and cheapest products in order to satisfy their needs. And their demands raise prices. The prospect of profit quickly pushes entrepreneurs into producing what people want and what they are willing to pay for. Profits illustrate how much people value an entrepreneur's services. Consumers only pay if the entrepreneur satisfies their desires. So as long as there are profits to be made, others enter the market. The competition spurs entrepreneurs to make production more efficient and cheaper because the greater the competition, the more the businessman will have to do to earn the customer's business. And as more goods enter the market, consumers can be more picky about whom to purchase from, and then prices drop. It's their own demand that sets the prices, and once they're satisfied and there's not as much profit in the business, entrepreneurs shift to making other things that people want. As many Austrian and non-Austrian and non-Austrian economists have found out, the market is an everyday voting system of what needs to be produced. Every penny acts as a vote for how to best use limited resources. Profits point entrepreneurs toward what people want most badly. The resulting production is a form of collaboration rather than exploitation. People can do more because they don't have to do everything themselves, and they can focus on what they do best. Finally, Income inequality is heightened by a restrained market. The left makes the mistake of arguing that only the rich have gotten richer and attack capitalism without looking at the facts. 
The market has made nearly everyone richer, not only in terms of income, but also in terms of the overall quality of life and the products they own. Leftists also ignore income mobility in market economies when studies show that, in fact, most people born to the richest fifth of Americans fall out of that bracket within 20 years, while most of those born to the poorest fifth climb to a higher quintile and sometimes even to the top. Though their rhetoric makes it seem surprising, this makes sense. As Ludwig von Mises pointed out in the anti-capitalist mentality, the businessman owes his wealth to his customers. And this wealth is inevitably lost or diminished when others enter the market who can better satisfy the consumer through lower prices and or a better quality of goods and services. The problem with income inequality today isn't that it's is that it isn't entirely a byproduct of a free market, but is instead the result of a market crippled by interventionist policies like regulations, expensive licenses and the most complicated tax system in the history of this country. Such restrictions have limited competition and made wealth creation more difficult, causing the stagnation of the middle and lower classes. Now, the leftists contend that these restrictions protect people from the dangers of the free market. They actually protect the corporate interests that progressives claim to stand against. Colossal businesses like Amazon and Walmart, in fact, favor higher minimum wages and increased regulations. They have the funds to implement them with ease, and such regulations end up acting as a protective barrier, keeping startups and potential competitors from entering the market. So with competition blocked, these businesses can grow artificially large, and they don't have to work as hard to earn people's business. Instead, they can spend money on lawyers and D.C. lobbyists to fence small businesses out of the market. Ironically, efforts to regulate businesses in the name of protecting laborers and consumers harms small businesses and makes everyone less equal than they could be in a free market. So the conclusion is this. Markets are not the enemy of inequality. Regulated markets are. The income inequality that naturally occurs in the free market as a result of human uniqueness is needlessly amplified by restrictive government policies to the detriment of everyone. Voluntary exchanges in capitalism are mutually advantageous. If they weren't, the exchange would never take place. And people who live in countries with more economic and social freedom enjoy greater incomes and a higher standard of living. Free trade has contributed more to the alleviation of poverty than have all the government-run programs. Socialist intervention in the market can only distance man from eradicating poverty and from happiness. Only unrestrained competition can drive, pro- driven by profit rather, can bring about the expansion of choice the fall in prices, and the increased satisfaction that makes us wealthier. Hey there, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde, and we're talking today about a number of different topics, kind of an economic slant, though, to this hour of the show, and I, I hope you find it useful. Uh, for some people, economics sounds like such a you know drab topic that you, can, you, you just mentioned the word economics, and their eyes glaze over almost instantly. I find it fascinating just because it's one of the few ways that you can start to make sense of why human beings do things the way they do, and yet... It's not an exact science in the sense that you don't have people in lab coats saying, well, you know, if you just set the price at this, you know, people will buy this many. Nope. We make decisions for a lot of different reasons. Every human being is unique and it's what makes the world go round. But unfortunately, there's a lot of folks out there who believe central planning is the way to go. One size fits all will make everything work for us. 
Uh, for us, of course, it means whoever's in charge of that central planning. For the rest of us, eh, not so much. I just am curious, do you find the self-checkout kiosks at the supermarket a bonus or no? Some people find it great. I'm, I'm not threatened by it one way or the other. But uh, do you know there are laws being proposed to actually uh, outlaw self-checkouts? And there's a great article from the Foundation for Economic Education. This is from David Youngberg. The war on self-checkouts shows the make-work bias is alive and well. He starts by pointing out in the 1960s, Milton Friedman reportedly visited a construction site in a foreign country. And to his surprise, the canal builders used no heavy machinery. Instead, they just sent thousands of men out there with shovels to do the digging. And he questioned the bureaucrat about this odd choice. And the bureaucrat said, well, it's a jobs program. Friedman said, oh, I thought you were trying to build a canal. If it's jobs you want, then you should give these workers spoons, not shovels. Whew. Now, Friedman's absurd proposal illustrates the absurdity of make-work bias, the belief that conserving labor makes us poorer. Make-work bias was particularly popular during the Industrial Revolution, when legions of new machines upended the old way of doing things. No one was more famously upset than the textile workers of the early 19th century, Luddites, who railed against the automatic loom, the job-killing machines of their day. Well, guess what? Here in the information age, we have our own Luddites. Among their ranks are Las Vegas culinary workers trying to hold back AI servers and bartenders and teamsters opposing self-driving vehicles and delivery robots. Luddites and their sympathizers heap a particularly large amount of criticism on self-checkouts, probably because their ubiquity makes them an obvious target. Now, their apprehension is understandable. The, the proliferation rather, of self-checkouts touches our daily lives so completely that it's hard to imagine cashiers not losing their jobs or suffering smaller paychecks. Self-checkouts threaten cashiers as surely as excavators threaten shovel manufacturers. So it's no surprise that protests erupted after a French supermarket used self-checkouts to get around labor laws or that the Oregon AFL-CIO backed a petition limiting the number of self-checkouts to just two per store. It's because every supplier hates competition. Well, having your own livelihood upended is a terrible thing, but holding society back for one's own benefit is far worse. Neo-Luddites missed the point of economic activity. If economic progress came from just any kind of work, then utopia would come with banning all labor-saving devices. Walking instead of bikes and cars, chalk instead of computers, spoons instead of shovels. It would be a very busy world and a very poor one. So what's the point? Well, the point is work is not the goal of economic activity. The goal is human flourishing. That goal is to discover ways to utilize resources in the best possible manner. Finding the right tool or bundles of tools for the right job. That's how societies get wealthier. That's what markets do best. Products represent bundles of consumer desires. Even the simple hot dog vendor is not simple at all and might try to attract customers with new toppings or a different location or a kosher option. Each product is a bundle of considerations that producers constantly tweak. Entrepreneurs try new approaches, and consumers either punish them with losses or reward them with profits. Most effective strategies displace less effective strategies. Economist Joseph Schumpeter coined the term creative destruction to describe this churn of good ideas proliferating and bad ones, new and old, disappearing. Creative destruction is the process of progress. Successful experiments reward the businesses intrepid and clever enough to try them. Sometimes consumers find a new bundle of price and product untenable, and the business suffers. 
Now, creative destruction is messy, and it goes against our instinctive desires for predictable and deliberate progress. But the author here points out it's necessary because no one knows beforehand which are the good bundles and which are the bad ones. No one even knows all the different bundles that can exist. Progress requires experimentation, and people must be free to reject and free to accept, says David Youngberg. Does that make sense? It makes sense to me. Now, he says we should not accept displaced workers as a reason to hold back change. Treating cashiers as make-work jobs transforms companies into sources of charity. That's a role better left to nonprofits and governments. Markets are good at discovering efficiency, but not running soup kitchens. Discovering new ways to make the most of what we have is the core competency of the for-profit sector. And that's what we should task them with. We shouldn't dig with spoons any more than we should eat soup with shovels. Prosperity requires the right tool for the right job. Now, a common criticism of self-checkouts is that we, the customers, do unpaid work. I've actually heard this before from my own kids. It's a rhetorically clever argument because it brings up images of slavery and forced labor. It sounds like self-checkout turns us into suckers. We should get a discount, they say, when we use one. But a puzzle lies at the heart of this criticism, one that robs critics of their not-so-subtle accusations of indentured servitude. We choose to patronize a store. We choose to use a self-checkout. We know many people prefer them because companies keep installing them. I mean, they'd be a wasted expense otherwise. We're not slaves, so why do we choose to work for free? Well, manifold considerations factor into consumer choice, and price is just one consideration. Location, customer service, ease of purchase, product variety, product availability, product quality, aesthetics, and other factors all play a role. And the importance of each factor varies from person to person and time to time. So to illustrate, suppose grocery stores required shoppers to bring their own carts back from the parking lot. It would save the store money, possibly a lot of money, by not having to hire people to do that job. Like self-checkouts, companies could make customers do that work for free. Now, the author here says, I'm familiar with one store that's done exactly this. The parking lot is somewhat small, so the store opted not to sacrifice any spots for cart returns, requiring customers to either carry their groceries to their car or push their carts back to the store. Carts from inconsiderate customers sometimes litter the parking lot. Now, this store can get away with not having any cart returns because it's adjacent to a high school and just off a major freeway. The parking lot is small because the land is valuable. The original builders surely knew this and correctly determined that people would be willing to trade one kind of convenience for another. Well, that store's been around for a while, so this bundle seems to be a winner. So if people work for free, there must be a good reason. People must be getting something for the annoyance of so-called unpaid labor, as... The author says, I sometimes occasionally suffer the annoyances of cart return in exchange for less driving. But the reality is, we do get paid for using self-checkouts. We get paid in time. Self-checkouts don't need space for a cashier. Many don't even have a conveyor belt, which is why two or three self-checkouts can fit in the same location as one conventional checkout. And assuming that a cashier isn't two or three times faster than an average customer, you're going to spend a lot less time waiting in line. But it gets better. Many grocery stores require you to choose a cashier line, which means you can get stuck behind a particularly slow customer. The density of self-checkouts often results in a queue, one line for multiple checkouts, enabling people to skip past patrons who happen to have a lot of coupons or need their ID checked. Over many shopping trips, that can add up to a lot of minutes, even hours, that would otherwise be frustratingly spent in line. That's why people choose to do unpaid labor, 
It's far faster if we do it ourselves. Now, it's important to remember that using a cashier doesn't mean you don't perform so-called unpaid labor. Waiting in line is its own form of labor. Huh, never really thought of it that way. Fewer cashiers mean longer lines. Stores could employ enough cashiers to utilize every checkout line, but they don't because customers aren't willing to pay the higher prices that so many employees would necessitate. This all makes sense, right? All right, we'll come back to it here in just a few moments. Again, save your calls for the next hour. We can talk about this then as well. The war on self-checkouts shows us that make-work bias is alive and well. This is Loving Liberty, and we'll be back right after these messages. All right, we are back. This is Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. Thanks so much for joining us. And listen, if you're finding value in the things that we talk about and share here on the broadcast or on the podcast, please feel free to invite your friends to likewise, you know, download the Loving Liberty app for their smartphone or for that matter, just visit our archives online at lovingliberty.net. Got a lot of great material, not just from me, but from all of our great hosts all the way across the network. So I've been talking about this war on self-checkout, showing that make-work bias is alive and well. It's an article from David Youngberg, who's an associate professor of economics at Montgomery College in Rockville, Maryland. And I don't know if you uh, if you have a bias against the self-checkout kiosk. Some people do. And I've heard people say, I don't work for Walmart. I'm not going to use their stupid, you know, self-checkout thing. But when I hear him, when I hear David Youngberg explain, look, waiting is also a form of labor. So if you're not into unpaid labor, but standing in line is okay with you. Mm, You might want to think about that. Some things are quicker to do yourself, and that saves you time that you can use more productively. And yes, I do believe time is, uh, is rightly considered a resource. I like how David Youngberg puts it. He says, uh, when, it, when it comes to these checkouts, customers would rather do some labor themselves, just as fast food customers accept bussing their own table. It's the natural requirement of a low price. I mean, you you could have employees to do it all for you, but the price of having those employees, the cost of their labor would be reflected in the food or in the items that you're buying. So there is no free lunch. Self-checkouts, he says, let us choose how we secure low prices. And some people prefer self-checkout labor, paying in effort to save time, to waiting in line labor, paying in time to save effort. Now, when the voters weigh in on an Oregon ballot measure this November to limit the number of self-checkouts to two, He says they might well do the bidding of the Luddites who wanted to limit consumer options for their own benefit. And David Youngberg says, I can only hope that wiser heads prevail. Wiser heads recognize that political decisions tend to force a uniform vision of what is acceptable and what is not. Options make markets great because we don't all have to want the same thing. Yes, not all businesses have cashiers, just like not all businesses have self-checkouts. Sometimes the choices are not viable due to the natural limits of the technology or the upfront expense. What these neo-Luddites want to do is steal our options away from us to artificially constrain choice, rob us of time, and force society to dig canals with spoons. What a marvelous story to help illustrate the point. All right, I'm going to shift gears into uh, something a little more political here. This is an article I came across earlier this week from uh, LouRockwell.com. 
talking about the Democratic Party. And this is if it sounds like piling on, I want you to know, I really I don't have any great affection for the Republicans. They are big state, you know, politicians just as much as their Democratic counterparts. But uh, I, I have to say, whatever problems the Republican Party has right now, they are not having the current meltdown that the Democratic Party is having. It's a fascinating and even somewhat horrifying thing to watch just because of the, the tendency for desperation uh, to, to kick in. Desperate people do desperate things. That could be a little bit scary. Here's what Pat Buchanan says in his article, Will JFK's Party Become Sanders Party? He says, Senator Bernie Sanders may be on the cusp of both capturing the Democratic nomination and transforming his party as dramatically as President Donald Trump captured and remade the Republican Party. After his sweep of the Nevada caucuses following popular vote victories in Iowa and New Hampshire, Sanders has the enthusiasm and the momentum as crucial battles loom in South Carolina on Saturday and Super Tuesday on March 3rd. He says the next eight days could decide it all. And what is between now and next Tuesday that might interrupt Sanders' triumphal march to the nomination in Milwaukee? Well, the debate in South Carolina, he said, might have been one of those things. Sanders, he said, will be taking constant fire as a socialist whose nomination could end in a rout in November. The loss of Speaker Nancy Pelosi's House and the forfeit of any chance of recapturing the Senate. I'm trying to think, since I didn't watch the debate in its entirety, but I just saw little bits and snippets. I'm wondering how that panned out. I think they did go after Sanders pretty hard, but uh, as, as Buchanan points out here, Sanders has often been attacked along these lines to little avail. He's shown himself capable of defending his positions, and attacks on Sanders may simply expose his opponent's own political desperation. Buchanan, Richard Nixon once instructed him after he went to work for him in 1966, whenever you hear of a coalition forming up to stop X, be sure to put your money on X. And Pat Buchanan says Nixon recalled the Cleveland Governor's Conference after Barry Goldwater defeated Nelson Rockefeller in the California primary. There on the Cuyahoga River, Governors Rockefeller, George Romney, and Bill Scranton colluded absurdly to derail the Goldwater Express. A second event is the anticipated endorsement of Biden by Representative Jim Clyburn. I think this actually happened yesterday. The most influential black politician in South Carolina who warns that nominating a socialist like Sanders invites electoral disaster. Yet Clyburn's endorsement could be a mixed blessing. With it, Biden becomes the favorite in the primary where 60% of the vote is African-American. If Biden cannot beat Sanders there in his firewall state with Clyburn behind him, where does Biden win? Biden faces another problem. Billionaire Tom Steyer has pumped millions into South Carolina, hired black leaders and pledged to support reparations for slavery. Polls show Steyer with rising support among black voters who might otherwise have stood by Biden. So South Carolina for Biden is do or die. If he wins there, he's revived. Yet still he lacks the broad and deep support Sanders has and the funds Michael Bloomberg has to be competitive in all 14 states holding primaries March 3rd, including the mega states of Texas and California. Now, Sanders is predicting victories in both and has been gaining in the polls on Senator Elizabeth Warren, even in Massachusetts, her home state, which also holds its primary on Super Tuesday. So Pat Buchanan says the basic question with Biden, Buttigieg, Warren, Steyer and Klobacher, none of whom has beat Sanders in the popular vote anywhere and all competing in South Carolina and Super Tuesday three days later, who beats a surging Sanders? When and where do they beat him? 
Pat Buchanan says Bloomberg can probably buy enough votes to win some states, but would the other Democratic candidates who fought for a year stand aside to yield the field so this ex-Republican oligarch can save their party from Sanders? Why should they? And where's the evidence that Bloomberg can beat Sanders or beat Trump? Bloomberg's first debate raises questions of what, besides his $60 billion, qualifies him to be on the stage or in the race. The Democratic establishment worries that if the moderates in the race don't start falling on their swords, dropping out and joining behind a single candidate, Biden, Buttigieg, or Bloomberg, to challenge Sanders, they will lose the nomination to Sanders and the election to Trump. So Pat Buchanan says the establishment is right to worry. While Sanders' chances of becoming president are slim, the odds he wins the nomination and reshapes the party are good and have been improving weekly. So what model does Socialist Sanders have in mind for the Democratic Party? Something like the British Labor Party of Jeremy Corbyn. Medicare for all, abolition of private health insurance, war on Wall Street, the Green New Deal, free college tuition, forgiveness of all student debt, open borders, Supreme Court justices committed to Roe v. Wade, welfare for undocumented migrants, a doubling of the minimum wage to $15 an hour. Winston Churchill once observed, some regard private enterprise as if it were a predatory tiger to be shot. Others look upon it as a cow that they can milk. Only a handful see it for what it really is, the strong horse that pulls the whole cart. Pat Buchanan says, Sanders sees free market capitalism as a fat goose that lays golden eggs and can be hectored, squeezed, and beaten into producing lots more. And those most widely widely receptive to his message are the young. Welcome to the party of JFK as reconceived by Bernie Sanders. Interesting take. And I know there, there are people who will agree strongly with Buchanan on some things, disagree strongly on others. I think he has a pretty good take. At least it's worth considering. I'm not saying, boy, what he says is going to come to pass, but uh, Pat's got the experience, and I think he has the principles to, to make a pretty good assessment of the lay of the land. And can I just confess, I feel a certain sort of pity for Joe Biden. The more I see him, you know, forgetting his train of thought as he's in the middle of, you know, a monologue on stage, the more I think, would somebody please just throw the towel in? You know, if, if I were the referee and it was a boxing match, I'd be ending this fight now, at least for Biden. As for who's going to be the contender come November, well, that still remains to be seen. This is Loving Liberty. You know, I still think at some level there is great validity in the message of uh, Jeffrey Tucker's uh, analysis of the debate uh, from uh, night before last, where, you know, the one thing all these all these uh, candidates have in common is they all think they are better qualified to run your life than you are. So if there is if there's a reason for delving into the political realm every so often, it's not because I really want to sway you. Hey, support this candidate or support this aspect of growing government. If anything, it's to to hopefully cause you to question, why should these people be calling the shots in your life when you are perfectly capable of making these decisions for yourself? That's the big hurdle that I think we've got to overcome. Uh, And I don't know. You know, the election is a reassurance ritual. A lot of people are going to have like a religious experience over it. How do you talk people down from a cliff like that? I guess you just have to live your life the best you can and hopefully do it by example.
Hey, once again, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. Glad you could join me today and hope you're spreading the word about our little broadcast and podcast, hopefully bringing light and truth to people for whom those kind of things matter. Now, what we're about to dive into next probably seems like a topic that is I don't know. It's it's so far on the periphery from most people's lives. Well, Julian Assange and WikiLeaks has absolutely nothing to do with me. And, you know, frankly, if you don't work in the uh, national security community, yeah, probably. Or if you don't work in the Department of Justice or if you're not a politician, yeah, chances are you you really don't give a lot of thought to Mr. Assange, who uh, unfortunately is uh, in the process of being uh, extradited to the United States so that he can die in prison. Yeah. Well, this is a story that actually has great relevance uh, to anyone who values knowing the truth more than simply, you know, saluting harder when the flag walks by. Let me explain. Julian Assange, um, of course, is the, the founder of WikiLeaks. What landed him in hot water with the U.S. government was the release of a number of uh, private papers, uh, diplomatic cables, and other things that were were considered classified, you know, these are things that the public cannot know about, that showed that our, our national security state, things that are being done in our name by our government, funded by our tax dollars, are taking place that uh, are, are really ugly, disturbing sorts of things. Now, some Americans are okay with this. In fact, some feel like they're trained to find any reason whatsoever to grasp for a reason to keep believing. One of the smears that has been leveled against Julian Assange that says, hey, he deserves whatever he's got coming to him, is the lie that he recklessly published unredacted documents. And nobody has been a stronger and better advocate of just setting things straight than Caitlin Johnstone. This is what she has to say in an article that was published uh, just uh, day before yesterday. She says the prosecution in the Assange extradition trial has falsely alleged that WikiLeaks recklessly published unredacted files in 2011, which endangered people's lives. Now, in reality, and by the way, she links to everything she talks about here, so I'll include this in the show notes. You can follow the links yourself and see if she's just making this up or if this is based in fact. She says, in reality, the Pentagon admitted that no one was harmed as a result of the leaks of the trial of Bradley Manning, and the unredacted files were actually published elsewhere as a result of a Guardian journalist recklessly including a real password in a book about WikiLeaks. Now, a key government witness during the Chelsea Manning trial, Brigadier General Robert Carr, testified under oath that no one was hurt by those leaks. Additionally, the defense secretary at the time, Robert M. Gates, said the leaks were awkward and embarrassing, but the consequences for U.S. foreign policy were fairly modest. Now, it was also leaked at the time that insiders were saying the damage was limited and containable, and they were exaggerating the damage in an attempt to get Manning published more severely. As Assange's defense highlighted during the trial, the unredacted publications were the result of a password being published in a book by Guardian reporters Luke Harding and David Lay, the latter of whom worked with Assange in the initial publications of the the Manning leaks. WikiLeaks reported that it didn't speak publicly about Lay's password publication for several months in order to avoid drawing attention to it, but broke its silence when they learned a German weekly called Freitag was preparing a story about it. And there's footage of Assange calling the U.S. State Department, trying to warn of an imminent security breach at the time, but they refused to escalate the call. 
It wasn't until it wasn't long after that that the full unredacted archive was published on a website called Cryptome, where it still exists in its unredacted form today, completely free from prosecution. It wasn't until the leaks were forced into the public at the initiation of Lay's password shenanigans that WikiLeaks published them in their unredacted form. Now, Assange's U.S. criminal defense lawyer, Barry Pollack, said in a press conference after the second day of the extradition trial being held at Belmarsh Prison, what was laid out in great detail in court today was that the United States government making this extradition request claimed that Julian Assange intentionally published names of sources without redaction. We learned today that the United States government knew all along that that wasn't true that when others were about to publish those names without redaction, Julian Assange called the State, Depart- the State Department to warn the State Department that others were about to publish and pleaded with the State Department to take whatever action was necessary to protect those sources. The idea that the United States government is seeking extradition of Julian Assange when it, the United States government, failed to take any action is really unfathomable. He says, I think we will learn more as this trial goes on that the United States government simply has not disclosed in the extradition request the underlying facts, end quote. Now, the U.S. government doesn't care about unredacted publications or it would have gone after Cryptome. The U.S. government doesn't care about people being harmed by Manning leaks. It knows that didn't happen. And as Caitlin Johnstone points out, what the U.S. government cares about is punishing a journalist for exposing its war crimes plain and simple. The attempts to smear Assange as reckless, cold, and cavalier with the Manning links, leaks rather, have been forcefully disputed by an Australian journalist named Mark Davis, who was following Assange closely at the time filming footage, which would have been would become the documentary Inside WikiLeaks. And there are links where you can listen to Davis's account of what transpired, or you can actually read about it in another, in another linked article. Davis details how The Guardian, The New York Times, and Der Spiegel journalists were putting Assange under extreme pressure to go to press before Assange had finished redacting names from the documents. None of the outlets offered any resources or support to help redact them, and Assange had to pull an all-nighter himself and personally cleanse the logs of over 10,000 names before going live. Now, Davis says it was the Guardian journalists such as Lay and Nick Davies, the two most vocal critics of Assange, who were displaying the cavalier attitude toward redaction back then. Of course, it was apparent that they would be risking, if not the safety, certainly exposing the identity of many people. There's tens of thousands of documents there, said Davis. I never witnessed a conversation where anyone took that seriously. Not one. Davis says the only conversation that he witnessed on the topic of redaction was between Davies and Lay, and Assange wasn't present. It occurred to Nick Davies as they pulled up an article they were going to put in the newspaper. He said, well, we can't name this guy, recalls Davis. And then someone said, well, he's going to be named on the website. Davies said something to the effect of, we'll really cop it then, if and when we're blamed for putting that name up. And the words I remember very precisely from David Lay as he gazed across the room at Davies and said, but we're not publishing it. Indeed, the only ones who seem to concur with this cavalier characterization of Assange are those who had a lot invested in making sure they weren't blamed for the leaks. Now, Caitlin Johnstone says journalist Ian Overton observed on Twitter recently that his experience working on the Iraqi on the Iraq war logs with Assange was very different to the gossip about him. Overton said, I worked closely with Assange when editor of Bureau of Investigative Journalism on the Iraq war logs. This claim absolutely false 
when it applies to that. We went to great lengths to redact names, protect identities. This is an assault on whistleblowing. And finally, there's a quote attributed to Assange by Lay, their informants, they deserve to die, with regard to the sources in the logs that he painstakingly redacted all their names from. It was supposedly said at a dinner that was attended by John Getz from Der Spiegel, who provided a testimony saying that he heard no such thing from Julian. In a classic case of projection, it appears that Assange's enemies are charging him with the very sins they were committing. Okay, so you're probably asking yourself, so why does this matter to me? Why should this matter? <sighs> That's a tough one to answer, unless, unless we can boil it down to, how does it affect you personally? And this is my best attempt at trying to connect those dots. It should matter to you if you believe that there is a limited and proper role which government should operate within. And that anything it does outside of that limited and proper role is dangerous, not only to your uh, life, but also your liberty and your property. It is in our interest to keep government accountable. Why? Because it is the one institution in our lives that operates on the premise of force. It can force people to do its bidding. And when government is taken off its leash and allowed to operate without any checks or balances or accountability to its power, that's when you see the absolute worst atrocities that mankind has ever seen. There's even a, co a, a phrase that was coined, democide, death by government. R.J. Rummel, historian, was the one who coined that, that phrase. And it's an accurate phrase. When you consider 200 million plus people were murdered by governments. This is not counting soldiers dying in war. These are people who did not... You know, weren't combatants. They were just inconvenient to their respective governments and were murdered by their governments. That's in the 20th century alone. So, yes, it's in your interest not to let government do things that it can't be held accountable for. Because while it may make you sleep better at night thinking, well, but at least they're doing them to bad people who live in caves on the other side of the world. No, the truth of the matter is, if it claims the power to do that without limit, without due process, without accountability, it can do it to you. It's just a matter of time. So the time to wake up is now and not when government's knocking on your door. This is Loving Liberty. Stay with us. Hour 2 coming up next.